would. Take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Acts chapter 5. The book of Acts chapter 5. That's where we are going to be this morning. We have been working verse by verse through the book of Daniel. Pastor Jim has been taking us on a journey through the book of Daniel. We'll pause from that study today while he's away. And Lord willing, we'll pick that up again next Sunday. He should be back with us. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now, this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, some of you, you already know where we're going, right? Some of you, you already are familiar with this account. You know what it's about, and you might be thinking to yourself right about now, Pastor Phil, what are you thinking? That will become more apparent as we dive into the text, and hopefully not too apparent this morning, if you know what I'm getting at. But I want you to know something. It is with fear and trepidation that I approach this text. It it really is uh, a serious matter, something that we're going to dive into today, and it is only with with fear and trepidation, and only by the grace of God would I even attempt to to, uh, teach something like this. And, And yet I have to say, I believe this is what God has for us today. I believe this is where He has us to be. You see, it was a few weeks ago, just in my own private uh, reading, my own daily devotionals, reading through the the book of Acts, I come across this chapter, and it was one of those mornings, maybe you can relate, some of you, that God was just dealing with me. He was just dealing with me, and He was speaking to me through this text, through this passage, and I found myself taking more notes than I normally do, and um, kind of even had a sense then. You know, I wonder if this is something I'm going to come back to in the coming weeks and months and possibly share on a Sunday morning, and well, here we are. But here's what I I want you to know. I just want to talk to you from the heart today. This is where where God met me just in this passage, and I just want to express uh, how He met me, and I pray that He would meet you in a similar way. So one more time, would you join me in prayer, and let's ask Him to make this clear and relatable to us today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as we open your word, Lord, we need ears to hear. We need to be led by your spirit into your truth, and I pray, God, that you would help us to get there today. Lord, if there's anything, again, that that would keep us from hearing and then applying and then obeying, Lord, would you help us to deal with those things? Would you remove those obstacles today and just speak clearly from your word today to your people, and change and transform us, Lord. We need, we need your help. We need your your guidance and your direction and your power in our lives. So please, Lord, meet us here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5. Maybe you've heard it said that the early church was a perfect church. Maybe you believe that. Maybe you've thought, you know, if we could just go back to the first century, if we could just go back to the first century and observe what they were doing, kind of be that fly on the wall and just take notes, you know, how long were their services? How long did the preacher preach for, you know? How many songs did they sing? What was the structure and the order of their services? What was their church government like? If we could just kind of learn those facts and and take that model and bring it back into our day, well, then maybe we too would have this perfect church. Now, don't get me wrong. In the book of Acts, especially at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see God moving in incredible ways. 
the Holy Spirit is, is being poured out and thousands of people, thousands of people are coming to Christ in a very short amount of time. Wouldn't you love to see that today? It's happening, but, but then, I mean, it was just a unique time in history. God was just working powerfully. There was miracles taking place. It was an amazing time, but please, let me dispel the myth. The early church was not a perfect church. And if we read on through our Bibles in the first century there, we discover that they struggled with the very same things that we are wrestling with today. Guys, there were divisions in the church. People were dividing over race. They were dividing over economic status. They were dividing over doctrine. Leaders were disagreeing with other leaders. There were splits in in that sense. But there was also sin. They struggled with the same things because you know what? People are people. Whether you live in the year 2021 or in the first century. People are people. They struggled with sexual sin. And they struggled with hypocrisy. The same, the same things that we are dealing with today. And that's really what we want to look at today. We want to look at the hypocrisy that was present, the hypocrisy that was evident there in Acts chapter 5 in this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. So take your Bibles there and join me in verse 1. We'll just dive in. I'm going to read through the entire passage, the entire text, and then I'll come back and make some application and and comment on it. Verse 1, but... A certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land For yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Wow. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things things wow that's an intense passage right 
That's kind of a, a, of a I don't know what to say. It's kind of a crazy thing, right? To, to see that, to be there amongst them and to witness that or to hear of that. How would that strike you? How would that move you? Well, as we dive into it this morning, let me give you a little bit of just the atmosphere, a little bit of uh, what was going on behind the scenes of this passage. This is a, an exciting time in the church, as I've, as I've already shared. This is an exciting time. God is, is on the move, and there's a powerful move of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and again, thousands and thousands of people are responding. The church is growing very, very rapidly. But we're not talking about just growth in numbers. That's exciting all by itself. But guys, people are growing in their faith. People are living this thing out. Notice a few things with me. If you would, look back at chapter 4 and look with me at verse 32. Just skip up a few verses there. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That in and of itself is amazing, right? One heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Drop down to verse 34. It says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one, or to each as anyone had need. Go ahead and stop there. So here's what's happening. The church is, is growing. They are, they are living their faith out. And those who have more, those who have an abundance, those that have houses or lands, they're kind of looking at this and, and recognizing, you know, we've, we've made a commitment to follow Jesus. And all of these things that we have, you know what? This world is not my home anymore. I'm, I don't care about these things any longer. I don't need these things. And so they began to sell these items and bring the proceeds to the apostles and and they divided it amongst the church so that no one in the church had any lack they met every need in this way and it was just an exciting time just a very cool thing to see that happening happening on a large scale now i, I just put before you wouldn't that be cool if, if we were seeing that same type of thing on a large scale now i want to say this it is happening we have people in our fellowship who are seeking to do this. We have people who come to us all the time and just say, are there needs? Can, can, can we reach out? Can we meet a need? Is there, some, is there someone right now who needs help? And there are people who are living this out uh, even as we speak. But again, we, we think about this one, one heart, one soul. There was one mind. I mean, there was great unity in the church. We also see there that God was doing mighty works through the apostles. I mean, it was just an exciting time in the history of the church. And here's the point that I'm getting to. Is that when God is working, when God is working in power, the enemy is also working. Just make sure you know that. Make sure you tuck that away in your mind because Satan will always resist the work of the Lord. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 5. This great work of, of generosity is happening, and Satan is now going to step in and seek to counterfeit that. Notice what it says in verse 3. 
Peter is speaking to Ananias and he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is the work of Satan. Satan has filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. This is the work of the enemy. And it's just so important that you understand this, that when God is moving and when God is working and when there are amazing things happening in the church, Satan's going to show up. Satan is going to show up and he's going to seek to cause the work to cease or to in some way taint what's going on. And that's what's happening here. When we forget this, or, or if we let that slip from our minds, we can be blindsided. And, and I know that even in a group this size, this has happened to someone here. This has happened to you. Maybe you were in a, in a season of revival. Maybe you were part of a church that was just growing, and God was doing exciting things, and just people were being saved, and it, it was just a, a time of revival in a church. Or maybe it was just personal revival. Maybe just you yourself, it was just a time of growth in your life and you were just walking with the Lord and day by day your relationship with Him was getting stronger and stronger and then all of a sudden something just came out of nowhere and just blindsided you and knocked you down. Here's the danger. If you're not aware of this, if you're not in, in, even to some degree expecting Satan to show up, this is the kind of thing that can sideline a person for a long time. It's maybe happened to some of you. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a tragedy of some kind. Could have been any number of things, but something comes into the situation, and if we're not careful, it could harm us to the place because we're not expecting it. We're just thinking, you know, God is working. Everything is rosy here. I mean, everything is just going going to go perfectly because God's in control. And, And yes, God is in control. But that doesn't mean that our adversary has stopped working. Maybe one of the stories that best illustrates this in the Scriptures is the story of Nehemiah. If you are familiar with the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes to the land of Jerusalem. He gets report that the city is just in shambles. The wall has been torn down, and so Nehemiah goes, and just in in great leadership, that's really one of the things that the story of Nehemiah pictures for us, just his amazing leadership to see the task. And God does an amazing thing. The people have a mind to work, and he rallies the the people there in Jerusalem, and they're, they're, they're about the Lord's business. They are rebuilding the walls, and then the enemy comes. And if you're familiar with the story, he tries all kinds of tactics. He tries every angle. He's attacking them from within. He's attacking them from without to cause the work to cease. But Nehemiah, he was a great leader. Nehemiah was a great leader, and he understood the enemy's tactics, and he was able to encourage the people. And so the work kept going. It kept going. And you know what? He did an amazing thing. He did something that people thought was impossible. In only a matter of days, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Again, just an important story, and if you have time on your own and want to look at that, it gives us just a great example of how to overcome trials. But here's the deal. We need to expect resistance from the enemy and overcome if you're leading a Bible study, if you're leading a ministry, I don't care what it is, even something small, just just know this. There will be resistance. 
there will be those, those opportunities where attack comes in. Just know it, be aware of it, expect it, and ask God to empower you to rise above it. Amen? So that's kind of the backdrop. The enemy here shows up. He shows up on the scene, and he fills Ananias, his heart, his wife's heart, to contrive, to come up with this plan, to plot this scheme. And that's what we see here. And we have an example here of hypocrisy. This moves me to my second point here this morning, and that is that there is a very serious problem when we are more concerned with looking good than actually being good. If you're more concerned with how you look on the outside, if you're more concerned with just appearances than what's happening inside your heart, that's a scary place. That's a serious problem. You see, they are pretending here. Ananias is pretending. Sapphira, they are pretending. They are pretending to be something that they're not. They are pretending to do something that they aren't really doing. And it would seem, at least from what we can gather, it would seem that they're okay with this. It would seem that they're okay with this. It would seem that they're fine with it. As long as they can maintain this charade, they're okay with it. Guys, that's a scary place. And, and I don't know if, if we can relate to that. I mean, I can honestly say, yes, God, God, He deals with us. He deals with me about just inconsistencies in our heart, places where we are more worried about how we look than what's really going on in our hearts. Now, understand this. Hypocrisy, it's nothing new. This is not the first time that hypocrisy shows up in the Bible. In fact, if we follow Jesus' ministry, This was something that he dealt with all the time. Jesus' harshest words, they were reserved for who? The Pharisees, right? The Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders of his day. Jesus' harshest words were against them. Why is that? Because these were the people who were responsible for shepherding Israel. They were responsible for making sure that these people were following the Lord. And instead, he calls them blind guides. You can't follow a blind guide, right? It's one of the things that was happening there in Jesus' ministry. I think of this verse here in Luke chapter 12. Jesus speaking, it says, He began to say to his disciples, notice this, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. And I think of just that phrase where he says, first of all. In other words, this is a priority. Just take note of this. Understand that this leaven of the Pharisees, this this hypocrisy, it has the potential to worm its way into your life. That's kind of the warning that he's giving us. And so this is certainly not the first time that hypocrisy shows up in the, in the Bible, but it's the first time that we see it clearly demonstrated in the church. And you know what? It's been a problem since then. It's been a problem since the first century. You guys know this, right? You guys know this. Hypocrisy, it's one of the biggest objections to Christianity. So many people say, you know what? I, 
I'm interested in, in Christ. I'm interested in his message, but it's Christians. I don't want to be a hypocrite like the rest of his, his people. The Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I want to join a church? Why would I want to be a part of this movement? It's one of the greatest objections to Christianity. Now, you and I, we know this. In many cases, maybe most cases, that's just an excuse. Just an excuse, but it's tragic nonetheless. And I don't want my life, I don't want my hypocrisy, my pretending, my inadequacies, I don't want, I don't want to be someone's stumbling block. I don't want to say, well, you know, I'd be a Christian except for Pastor Phil over there. I just don't want that to be me. Here's the deal, guys. Our lives should should be attractive. We should be giving off the fragrance of Christ. And there should be something attractive about our lives. That doesn't mean that people are going to look at us and, and immediately follow Christ because that involves sacrifice. That involves taking up a cross and actually following Jesus. That's, there's a cost to it. But there should be something about our lives, some kind of attractiveness that people would look at us and say, you know, there is something unique about you. There is something distinct about you. I may, not, I may not like your message, but there's something that I admire about your integrity. There's something I admire about your character. There should be something attractive about our lives. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Many of you, you're familiar with the term stolen valor. Everybody know what that means? The term stolen valor. What this is is when somebody pretends to be a hero, pretends to be a military hero, right? They go on eBay and they find a military uniform. They find some medals and they put on this military uniform. They put on all of their medals and and they invent some kind of narrative. They they make up some story. They contrive some, you know, they, they, they take the time and research actual combat events and they place themselves in that setting but here's the deal you can buy a uniform on ebay right you can buy a purple heart you can buy some medals but that doesn't mean that you're a hero that doesn't mean that you did anything heroic and here's the deal when those individuals are found out in 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 our day of social media it's a pretty common thing sooner or later they get found out right There's nothing attractive about that. Nobody looks at them and says, wow, that was really cool what you just did there. Nobody's impressed. Nobody is moved by that. Instead, it just leaves people just repulsed. I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with that individual. That person is just pretending. That person is just an actor, just like the person who plays a soldier On television or in a movie, there's nothing heroic. There's no sacrifice there. They didn't risk their lives. They didn't actually go into harm's way. And and you guys follow me. There's nothing about that that is attractive. And guys, so it is in, in the faith. When we present ourselves as these people of great generosity, 
or these people of great sacrifice. So we present ourselves to be these righteous followers of Jesus Christ, and it's not authentic. There is nothing attractive about that. So let me ask the question as we kind of move to the next point. Why would someone do that? Why would someone take the time to go on eBay, find a uniform, find a bunch of medals, a bunch of commendations, and a bunch of, you know, all of those things, awards? Why would they take the time to actually research a military unit and and find out what their combat actions were? Find out uh, where that unit was operating in a particular uh, conflict or or a particular theater of war. Why would somebody do that? Because they love the praises of people. They love the recognition. They love to put on their their uniform with all of their awards and and look very pristine on the outside and and go out in public and and people come up to them and, and so, sir, ma'am, thank you for your service. They love the praises and the recognition from people. And that brings me to my next point, that motives matter. Our motives matter. If we are moved by that, if we're moved by praise, if we're moved by adoration, if that is why we do what we do, then we've missed the point. We've missed the mark. If the reason we serve God is because somebody is going to put our name on a building or, or is going to recognize us in public, if we serve because we love the, the adulation of people who come up after service and say, oh, thank you so much, that was such a blessing. If that's why we do it, then there's a problem there. Now, word of warning, because praise, um, recognition, those things are kind of hardwired into our DNA. I mean, just as human beings, we crave that. To some extent, we even need that, right? I mean, to some extent, we need to feel loved. I mean, that's just part of us as human beings. The problem is, is if we let that direct our path, if we let that dictate our actions, if we let that be our motivation, well, then that's the problem because it can lead us down the wrong road if we aren't careful. So what was their motivation? What was the motivation of Ananias and Sapphira? Why did they pretend? Why did they put on this whole facade? Why did they go down this road? Well, look with me again at chapter 4. Let's look at verse 36. Skip up a, a couple of verses there, and it says this, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then notice the next verse. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and then it goes on and describes what he did. That little word but right there, that is connecting these two stories. These two accounts, Barnabas 
And Ananias and Sapphira, they are connected. But I want you to notice there's a, there's a contrast here. There's a big contrast. It could be, it could be that Ananias and Sapphira, they looked at Barnabas. And here's somebody who is highly esteemed in the church. We know who Barnabas is, right? We know Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the key people. He's going to be set apart with the Apostle Paul to go out and, and do these incredible missionary journeys. Barnabas is an amazing man of faith. That's how the Scripture upholds him. He's doing great things, and it could be that when Barnabas sold his possession, he comes and lays that gift down at the apostles' feet, that everybody's just kind of like, wow, isn't he awesome? That was so incredibly generous. That was such an amazing thing. And you know what it was? But Ananias and Sapphira, they see it. And they come up with this scheme, this plan. You know what? Maybe we can have that same kind of recognition. Maybe they were going for position. Maybe they were angling for influence within the church. And they realized, you know, if, if we can pull this off, maybe we can have kind of this greater position, greater influence within the church. We don't know what their motivation was exactly. The Scripture doesn't tell us. But somehow these two accounts are connected. Somehow this incident with Barnabas moved them to come up with this plan. It might be that they just wanted the praise. They just wanted to be recognized. There's another possibility. Maybe they felt obligated. You see, this thing was happening a lot, right? We talked about it already. People were, were giving away their possessions. They were making sure that there was no lack in the church. Maybe they felt guilty. Maybe they felt pressured. Maybe they felt, you know, everybody else is doing this. If we don't do it, we're going to look really bad here. That's a possibility. We don't know what their motivation was, but let me, let me just be very clear. Either of those motivations, neither of those is the right motivation for giving to the Lord. Whether you're giving your finances, whether you're putting your offering in the box or, or, uh, or, or giving to a, a cause, a ministry, or whether you're giving your time or your talents, guilt, greed, neither of those are good motivations, right? One more thing I want to point out here just regarding this. Anytime money is in the mix, there's going to be issues. Anytime money gets added into the equation, there are going to be problems. I think of this passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, sometimes this verse is misquoted. Sometimes people say, well, that money itself is a root of all kinds of evil. That's not what it says. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The, the, the issue is not money. Money is not the problem. We are the problem. It's our greed. It's our covetousness. That is what creates the issue with money. Money is neutral. Money is a powerful tool in the hands of those who are, are generous, in the hands of those who, who recognize, you know what? This is from the Lord. Money is a powerful tool. But for the person who is greedy, the person who is covetousness, then it's a thorn in their side. 
And so Ananias and Sapphira, they come up with this thought here. You know what? We can actually kill two birds with one stone. We can do this thing and we can look attractive. We can do this thing and we can receive the praise and the adoration of people and we can also keep some of it back for ourselves, right? Now understand this. One thing that that is sometimes mistaught in this text is that this was not required. There is no requirement at all. God never gave them a command that you have to do this. They were not under obligation. Now they might have felt that way. They might have felt from others pressured to do it, but God never commanded this. This was a free will offering. God never says you have to do this. And and, in fact, that's clear in verse 4. Notice what it says there in verse 4 of chapter 5. It says, uh, Peter is speaking. He says, while it remained, speaking of the land, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Peter is simply saying, hey, this is your land. It's in your control. You can do with it whatever you want. And once you sold it, the money, that's also within your stewardship, within your control. Why have you done this? This was not something required of them. Instead, no, this is something that they... They plotted and they schemed and they thought, how can we use this? How can we twist this to our advantage? That's what was going on. And I just want to say this. God is more concerned with the giver than He is with the gift. God is more concerned with the giver than He is with the gift. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need your money. Now, when you give to Him, it can be an offering. And it can be used and it can, it can fund missionaries and it can feed hungry people and it can be used for wonderful things, but God doesn't need it. God is more concerned about your character. God is more concerned about the integrity of your heart. And it reminds me of the story of the widow. You remember the story of the widow? She's there at the Temple Mount. And Jesus is sitting opposite the treasury and all of the people are coming with their big bags of cash. And they're laying them in the, the treasury and then comes a widow. She has two mites. Very small amount. A minuscule offering compared to that. And she puts it in the treasure. She gives it to God. And Jesus says, you know what? She gave more than anybody else. The amount that she gave from an eternal perspective, from a kingdom perspective, was greater than anyone else's giving. Why? Because it was real. It was genuine. There was nothing there. The sacrifice was real. Jesus said she gave her whole livelihood. It was, a, it was a genuine sacrifice. It wasn't put on. It wasn't phony. It wasn't fake. And Jesus gives her, I guess we might say, the praise. He recognizes her. He commends her. That's where it needs to come from, guys. That's where we need to find it. In your ministry, in your serving, that's where it needs to come from. It needs to come from Him, not from the people around you. That's what we need to value is His commendation. Leaving that, let's try to tackle another question. Why did God do this? So, so we see what they did. We can recognize, yeah, that's, that's a problem. There's, there's nothing attractive about that. They have a, a serious character flaw. We can agree there, I think. But why did God do this? Why did they die on the scene? Some people struggle with this. Why did God deal so severely with Ananias and Sapphira. 
And we might even say, you know, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? After all, they, I mean, they still gave money. They still gave money. And again, God is concerned with the integrity of our hearts. That's the primary thing here. But I want us to see this. They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what the text tells us there. And we just need to understand, we just need to know this, that lying to God is a serious offense. Now, very, very quick technical note. Notice with me uh, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then skip down to the end of verse 4. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so what I want you to see is that lying to the Holy Spirit is synonymous or is equal to lying to God. Why do I bring this out? Well, simply because there are some who misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is. There are some who teach that the Holy Spirit is just this active force, that the Holy Spirit isn't really God, that it's just this active force, kind of like electricity or something like that. But I want us to understand, please know this, the Holy Spirit is God. We may not understand that. We may not understand how the, the unity within the Godhead works, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All of that might be an incredible mystery to us that we cannot wrap our minds around, and yet that does not disprove it. The Holy Spirit is God, and that's what this, this section is affirming to us. So lying to God, lying to God is a serious offense, but notice this, it's also a premeditated offense offense now i don't know a whole lot about the legal system and all of that kind of stuff maybe some of you know far more but even the average person can recognize that a crime that is premeditated is more heinous than one that just happens spur of the moment in a in a in a fit of rage or whatever premeditated murder first degree murder is a more serious offense than Murder that happens just as a, as a crime of a passion in the moment, right? At least that's how our legal system sees it. And I think we can understand this. There is something really scary about the person who is sitting there plotting and planning these things. The person who is premeditating a crime. There is something about that that is just really heinous. I think of this verse here in Psalm 36. It begins like this. It says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That kind of just sets the, the stage, sets the tone. This is the unbeliever. This is the person who is, is uh, wicked and their sin. They, they have no fear of God. It goes on a few verses later and it says this. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. And the picture, I think you can see it, but here's a person just laying on his bed at night just thinking, hmm, how can I pull this off? How can I, how can I do this in a way where I don't get caught? How can, I, how can I do this where, you know, I cover all my bases, where I make sure that, you know, I don't leave any stone unturned? And, and you can just picture it in your mind, right? I just want to say that's a scary place. And for us as believers, when we are premeditating sin, we're all sinners, right? I mean, we'll talk about that 
when we close here in a moment. But there's something scary. The, the believer, the person who claims to be, be a believer, who is premeditating his sin, her sin. That's a scary place. And I just want to appeal to you today. I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone here, maybe someone online would find themselves, you know, that actually describes me right now. You might find yourself in a situation where you're doing this, and it could be any number of things, but you're thinking it through. How can I pull this off? How can I pull this off and not get caught? How can I maintain my appearance at church when I gather together with other believers? How can I maintain this this look? How can I look good, look the part, but still have my sin? And that's a scary thing for us today. And I just want to appeal to all of us because not one of us is above falling into that trap. So it's a serious sin. It's a premeditated sin. And there are a handful of other things in the Scriptures that we could point to as to why God deals so severely with them. There are a few examples in the Scripture where God intervened in a similar way. Maybe some of you, you're familiar with Korah's rebellion that's found in Numbers 16 where Korah led a rebellion against Moses. Moses was the clear leader. God had established His authority upon Moses. Moses was the one that God put in charge. And Korah says, I don't like that. And he, he arranged this rebellion and God dealt very severely with them. You might also think about the priesthood. The day that the priesthood was established, day one, the inauguration of the priesthood, I kid you not, first day, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, what do they do? They put strange fire in their censers. They offer strange fire to the Lord. And what happens? They're struck dead right there on the scene, right there in that moment. God deals severely with them. And here we have this passage. And it seems that there are those moments when God is doing a new work And he just intervenes in that work because he sees, you know what, you guys are getting off course here. You guys are getting off course, and so I'm going to intervene in my wrath to bring everyone back into alignment. And that's certainly part of what is happening here. God is realigning the church and just saying, he's demonstrating his values and just saying, this is not okay. This is not okay. So that brings us to the next obvious question, and that is, does God still do this today? Is He still doing this type of thing today? Interesting thought. I read a a few commentators, and and people disagree about this. Some would say, no, this was just a one-time thing. God was just, again, just revealing His his values in a sense. God was just kind of realigning the church but I just want to say this carefully. God is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We can't put God in a box. And there may be instances where in His sovereignty He chooses to act in a similar way and, and what would keep Him from that? But thank God that He doesn't. Because it, really, if it comes down to us, who could stand? Would any of us be standing here? Would any of us still be alive here? It is only through Jesus Christ that all of us, that that anyone is not 
immediately struck down, right? We're all sinners. We have all failed. We have all gone astray, the Bible tells us. It's only through Jesus Christ. Thank God for the grace that we have in Him. Thank God that He met that standard, right? That Jesus Christ met that standard of righteousness because here's something that is for absolute, uh, absolutely true. We haven't kept it. We haven't maintained it. But Jesus has. And so it's only through His grace. So as we now kind of begin to draw this to a close, I just want to ask the question, how do we respond to a passage like this? What should be our right response? Notice with me uh, verse 11 here. We can see how they responded. It says, so great fear, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. They responded with great fear. You know what? I think that's lacking today. I think it's lacking. I think that we have lost sight of who God is. We sang that song at the end, El Shaddai, Almighty God. We have lost sight of the holiness and the greatness and the power of God. It's something that has slipped from us as a church at large. It's something we need to be brought back to. There is a healthy fear that we ought to have for the living God. I think of this verse here in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Do we see Him that way? Do we picture God that way? Or do we just picture God as the the loving, grandfatherly type figure? Well, God is love. We know that. God is love, but He's also a holy God. And the Bible describes Him here as a consuming fire. And that ought ought to cause us just to, to take a moment and reset our hearts and recognize, you know what, maybe... Maybe I have lost sight of that. Maybe I have, have uh, lost sight of the fear of the Lord a little bit. But I think there's another fear that also comes into play here. And that is, I think that as these people saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, I think that they feared because they could relate. I think they also feared because they realized, you know what? I've done that. Oh, maybe not the same sin. And that's one of the things I want to I talk about here for a moment because you may think about their sin, uh, what they did. And you may think, Pastor Phil, I'm, I have no temptation towards that. In my giving and, and whatever, I have no desire for recognition. I, don't, I, I want to remain completely anonymous. I have no, no temptation in there. This, this doesn't, but there's something else. There's something else. We all have those stumbling blocks in our lives, those besetting sins, those things that that hinder us. You have yours, I have mine, and we're not above. No one is above falling into these things. We haven't arrived, right? We haven't reached that full maturity in Jesus Christ. We still wrestle with our flesh every single day. No one here is exempt from that. 
Now there's a day coming, praise God. There's a day coming when that's going to be put aside. There's a day coming when we're not going to have to deal with that. But if anybody thinks that they are above falling into some temptation, some kind of sin, I just want to say, there is no one in this room, there is no one listening online where this couldn't happen to you. I think of this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. If anyone would have the, the arrogance, and, and really that's what it is, to say, not me. Oh, not me, Pastor Phil. Not me. I could never do that. I could never fall into that kind of situation. Take heed. Take heed. In fact, I think of, of Peter. Peter here in our text, well, he's walking in the power of God, right? We see Peter and the apostles, they're, they're doing a great work, but that was only after restoration. Do you remember the story of Peter? You remember when Jesus, the night of his arrest, and Jesus is telling his, his disciples, you know what, you're all going to scatter from me, you're all going to leave me. This is what's coming. And Peter's like, no, not me, Lord. Maybe those guys, yeah, I could see them doing it. But filled with this bravado and this boldness and really arrogance he tells the lord i will die with you i will never leave you lord and jesus just kind of looks at peter and says you know peter before the rooster crows you're going to you're going to deny me three times this is going to happen and sure enough it did and peter was humbled that day peter was humbled that day We haven't arrived. Not a single one of us has. So here's how I want to close. I want to close thinking about that passage in Luke with the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says these two went in to pray. And here's the Pharisee, and he's, he's praying. And, and what is he saying? Oh, Lord. And, and the Bible, it's, it's kind of funny because the Bible says he's actually praying with himself. In other words, he's not talking to God. It's as if he's just talking to himself. He's like, I, I'm so glad that I'm not like these other people. I'm so glad that I don't fall into these things, that I don't do these things. In fact, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Here's that whole money thing again, right? I give tithes. And he's going on and on about his goodness and how I'm not like this, this sinner over here, this tax collector over here. I'm, I'm so glad that that's not me. And then we have the sinner, and he's just like beating his breast. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus asked the question, which one do you think left that place justified? So here's what I want to ask us to do. Let's go before the Lord and let's examine our motives. Why do we do what we do? Are there areas in our lives where we are pretending? Are there areas in our lives where we, where we just kind of want to put on a good appearance? We're not really concerned so much about what's really on the inside as long as the outside looks good. As long as people think that I'm a good person, does it really matter if I'm actually good on the inside, right? No. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what he's doing in your life. 
He's growing you. He's sanctifying you. That means that, that he is maturing us. We are growing in Christ. And that leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus talked about, that hypocrisy, he's rooting it out. And here's what I want to encourage us in. Let's not drag our feet in that. Let's allow him to deal with us. Let's allow him to take those, those elements of our character that are flawed, those parts of our integrity that, that need to be dealt with. Let's allow him to do that. There's no shame here today. I'm not shaming anyone. I'm just saying we're all kind of in the same boat as human beings. We're all guilty in one sense. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we have hope this morning. Because of Jesus, no one here is a lost cause. And that, that ought to give us much hope, much hope. So let's, let's let the Lord deal with us. I, I want to give you just a moment. Uh, I'm going to start us in prayer. Dave is going to play uh, some music behind me here. And just take a quick moment and respond to the Lord this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I want to just ask God, deal with me. Deal with me, Lord. I know. I, I, I see it in me. I see the potential that I have to fall into sin, into temptation. I see the potential that I have, Lord, that I can play a part that isn't really true, isn't really authentic. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would root that out of me. And I pray for your people, Lord. I'm so glad that you love us. I'm so glad that you love them. And Lord, you're concerned more about the giver than you are with a gift. You're wanting to do a work deep in our hearts, and I pray that even now, Lord, you would be doing that work. Take just a moment. Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who lived that perfect life, Lord, because we are unable to live it. And we thank you, Lord, that he has imparted righteousness to all of those who, who truly believe in you, that we have his righteousness. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us access, that we can come boldly before your throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've not cast us off. Thank you, Lord, that you've not dealt so severely with us, Lord, and I pray that you would rescue us. You'd rescue us from sin. You'd rescue us from temptation. And help us, Lord, to walk with you and follow you with, with true genuineness and authenticity, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's all stand together. We'll close in a final song of worship. If you need prayer, uh, there'll be people around. I'll be up front here. Be happy to pray with you this morning. If you don't know the Lord, 
If you are outside of a relationship with him and you don't have his forgiveness yet at this point in your life, I would love to visit with you as well after the service. But now, let's lift up our voices and close in worship. <laughs>